1110, 99.3 WBT. I'm Pete Callender. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for letting me be a part of your day. I do appreciate it. The phone numbers are 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Full warning here. Oh, and the email is Pete at the PeteCallenderShow.com. Full warning here. Um, as Jerry V used to say, we're going to go deep. All right? We're going to take it deep because there is a lot going on in the cultural conversation in the moment regarding transgenderism. You have the political activism side. You have the medical side. You have a religious side, right? You have this family dynamic, as we heard in the last hour from Corey. How do you deal with these things? And these are very weighty subjects. And so I want to give a a hat tip to a a listener named Ron Parker, who, um, who sent me a link. And I do open some links, by the way, if you send me a link. But you have to write stuff about the link. You can't just send me a link and say, look at this. Not going to happen. you got to be like, hey, Pete, this is what I was watching. Look at this time code, like at this mark in the video, whatever. So he sent me a video, and it was actually of a uh, of a podcast. I guess they call them podcasts. Do we call them podcasts on YouTube? It doesn't make sense. YouTubes? What do you call them? Video? I mean, what do you call them? Yeah, it's a stream, but it's on a live stream. So is it an episode? Is it just a show? It's a program? I don't know. I'm down a rabbit hole. I apologize. Anyway, there was a show on YouTube called Parallax Views, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X. Parallax Views. Oh, or maybe it's Parallax. Could be Parallax, like two L's. Like like Espanol, it would be the two L's, give you a Y sound, so maybe it's a Parallax. Anyway, Parallax Views. And the host had this uh, author or this writer on Helen Joyce. Helen Joyce um, is an Irish novelist and journalist. She has acted as the executive editor for events and business at The Economist in London. Before that, she trained as a mathematician, graduating from the Trinity College in Dublin before attending Cambridge. She acquired a Ph.D. in geometric measure theory at the University College London. She has held many roles as a uh, journalist, working for Plus Magazine, Significance Magazine, both of which have an emphasis on communicating complex math and statistics to the everyday reader. Uh, Later, she would spend three years as The Economist's foreign correspondent to Brazil, living in Sao Paulo. In 2018, she curated a series of articles on transgender identity, which led her to author the Sunday Times best-selling book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. So that's who this woman is. She also, by the way, is not religious. She does, she does not believe in religion. She says she was raised as a Catholic, but is an atheist now. Okay, so this is not coming from a religious perspective from her. She says... In this, because now you're about to hear audio uh, of her on a different podcast, because this is the one that I landed on after I watched her on Parallax, which I might go back and pull a couple of clips from. But this was the one, this was like an hour and a half podcast on, on uh, with Jordan Peterson on his podcast. It was like an hour and a half on uh, Daily Wire, I believe, is the, uh, the, the uh, YouTube channel. She says one of the reasons why the vitriol, 
is so intense on this subject is because she says it's so linguistic. When you say that men can become women by saying that they're women or vice versa, you're making a statement about language, not about reality. And in the post, the postmodernist turn is precisely that turn in which the language takes precedence over the bedrock material itness of things. And so when somebody like me insists on talking about the reality that they see and refuses to use the words that are mandated, we're destroying the reality that people are trying to create. And since they see the reality that they're trying to create as something that is socially just, that they're trying to bring around, bring about a new Jerusalem, someone like me is doing a very bad thing and should be silenced by any means necessary, including by lying about me or, you know, threatening me or um, trying to get me out of my job and so on. This is, this is so important, right? Everything is built around the language, the linguistics. Without the ability to manipulate the words and the meanings of words in this debate, right, the people who are asserting these things cannot stand, right, the, the merits of their arguments collapse, uh, collapse because they cannot win unless they manipulate definitions and words. It is so linguistic. I'm going to play this again because this is sort of foundational to understanding what she and Peterson are now going to start talking about. When you say that men can become women by saying that they're women or vice versa, you're making a statement about language, not about reality. And in the post, the postmodernist turn is precisely that turn in which the language takes precedence over the bedrock material itness of things. Itness of things, right? The reality of what this thing is, right? That that is no longer the thing. That is no longer the truth. That is no longer superior. That is subsumed by what we are calling it. This is, you know, sort of at the heart of the postmodernist philosophy. This is what we're getting at. This is what all of this issue is kind of wrapped in. Linguistics. She says we're seeing a social contagion, and she calls it a essentially a social contagion that is carrying a new religion, a neo-religion. It would not be able to spread without social media, as well as the enforcers at the tech companies. Jordan Peterson, clinical psychiatrist, he elaborates on this idea, tying it into the meaning of words. What seems to me to be the postmodern anti-enlightenment and anti-Judeo-Christian insistence that epistemology, which is the model of reality, let's say, that we use to guide ourselves, trumps ontology, which is reality itself. And so the postmodernists insisted that the meaning of words could only be adjudicated in relationship to other words. And so they thought of the whole linguistic corpus as something like a massive dictionary where every word only bore meaning in relationship to other words and really did attempt to deny or downplay the idea that there was an external transcendent reality, deistic or objective, that could serve as a corrective to these epistemological uh, propositions. And I... All right, I'm going to stop right there. First off, that's a lot of big words he uses. But also, more importantly... Did you catch the part about, like, it's basically like this, he said, this corpus or this body of, uh, of like, all of these words, like a dictionary, right? And what did we just talk about? Dictionary.com. Picking as the word of the year, woman, right? Woman. A word 
that everybody has understood from the beginning of words. But now, all of a sudden, we don't know what this word means, right? Now, all of a sudden, and by the way, the uh, CNN story, of course, makes no mention of the movie, What is a Woman? (laughs) It doesn't make any mention of it. But that's why people started asking these questions at congressional hearings. Because what it, what it proves is that there are people who are so far down this postmodern path that they can't even identify and articulate what Helen Joyce called the itness of things, right? What is it? And you can't even see that these things are immutably correct and real. And you've constructed this other reality that now you're demanding other people participate in and getting very upset when they do not or cannot. And you've lost sight of what you're doing. You don't even realize you've, you've constructed the false reality. Right? This, this model of reality trumps reality itself. This is what Peterson just said. The model, the fakeness, the constructed, that's more important than what is real. Which, of course, undermines, as he mentioned, like all of the ideals of the Enlightenment. I mean, what is science, for example, right? Science is the pursuit of what is real. And you try to get there by doing these experiments and narrowing things down and understanding what is real, what is not, what causes it and what effects occur, right? And if you cannot identify the itness of a thing, science is dead, <laughs> just automatically, right? What? How do you conduct any experiment if you don't know what it is that you're like, oh, I'm going to do an experiment on this thing. Oh, I don't even know what this thing is. I don't know what to call it. What does that identify as? Uh, oh, I just called it an experiment. I can't call it an experiment because, like, what does that mean, right? When you start ripping away the definitions of all things, nothing has any meaning, which, of course, is the, I mean, that's like the, the benefit of postmodernism. Yay, no meaning to anything, like life itself. And then people wonder why, like, Amazon is selling suicide kits in the mail. Well, yeah, if nobody has a purpose and there's no meaning to life, like, what's the point? Gosh, I don't know why there are all these murders happening. Why do people value life so little? Gee, I don't know. Postmodernism, maybe? A reminder. Truest Field, now through January 6th. No baseball, just memories at the Light the Nights Festival. Snow tubing. They got a skating rink, so you can, you know, do ice skating, figure skating. You can also play hockey while ice skating as well. I mean, if you want to mix the two up, that's fine. I'm not judging. They got the light show, live entertainment, Christmas trees, Santa Claus, shopping, holiday treats, the Christmas village, the holiday market with the European menu, and a 150-foot snow tubing hill. Did I mention that? I did. Okay. Christmas tree lane as well. Check it out. Light the Nights Festival, now through January 6th. All right, so let me uh, finish up this audio clip here. This is Jordan Peterson uh, from the Daily Wire, uh, clinical psychiatrist, uh, no longer practicing because he basically can. He talks about it that in this. But it's an hour and a half podcast. You can uh, I, I link him up on the Pete's Prep, but also you can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's fairly recent. I want to say it's within the last couple of weeks, I, w- I believe. But he's interviewing Helen Joyce is her name, and she is an Irish novelist and journalist and um, editor at The Economist in London, wrote a book called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. And Peterson is talking about um, this idea of uh, 
the meaning of words and constructing different definitions that constantly change. And this is a mechanism in order to advance postmodernism. And we see it most acutely in the transgender issue. I think that was driven in part by the underlying Marxist insistence that, let's say, power rules everything, but also that human beings are infinitely malleable and because of that can be molded and should be molded in the view of whoever happens to hold the utopian reigns, let's say, and all of that's tangled together. And you also called this a neo-religion. And so that's why I'm bringing up all these additional factors, because I think they play into this religious, what's become a religious battle, essentially. And we should also talk about why you and I have both of both concluded, apparently, that this is best construed as a religious battle. Yeah, I mean, I agree with every word that you say. And in particular, I would say that the reason that this battle is being fought on women's bodies, particularly, because if you want to say that sex isn't real and what people say about themselves is real, like formally, that's symmetric. That should affect everybody. But actually, it affects women because women's bodies are more exigent than men's. So we're the ones who carry the babies, basically. And I think that means that a large share of all women hit the bedrock reality of this is how we make new human beings. And Mm. it's easier for men to ignore that fact, easier for men to think of themselves as a a ghost in a machine or as a little homunculus being carried around by a meat puppet, um, as someone who could become immortal, as someone who could, you know, cut the fleshly bonds or that, you know, we could start doing womb transplants, all these things. Like if you've had that experience of growing another human being and then having to get it out of you, you're just a much less, um, you're just much less amenable, shall we say, to these sorts of illusions. And so here in, in Britain, one of the major sites of resistance to all of this is Mumsnet, which has this reputation as being a site where you talk about, you know, what are the best uh, diapers to buy or what's the best formula or, you know, is my husband being a jerk or whatever. But actually, it's also where women talk about this movement to turn the word woman into something that just means a feeling, a feeling that can be in a man's head. Being a woman can be defined simply as a feeling, a feeling that can be in a man's head. Does that strike you as just a teensy-weensy bit insulting? That, oh, I can, yeah, I could just, you know, decide, I could just conjure up an idea of what I think this other kind of person is, and then I will sort of ape that, and then I am that. Right? You're, you're, you're viewing it through just essentially a single lens, are you not? Like the outward reflection of what that looks like to you and your understanding of what this looks like to you, but you don't know because your body did not go through those changes. You cannot carry a child in your womb, right? So you cannot obviously no you did not go through the the puberty and the hormones and the the thoughts and all these ideas you didn't go through all of that so how could you know right of course it would be different and um she then explains in the book as as she does in the book that sex emerged 1.2 billion years ago before trees And the brain emerged 500 million years ago. So sex predates a central nervous system. And as such, sex predates the ability to conceptualize anything. So one 
existed before the other existed. So if we're saying now the conceptualization is the thing that is paramount, that is a reordering of the historical record, is it not? That's saying, okay, yes, I know male, female existed way before, but now we have this conceptualization ability, and so that's now more important. That trumps this. But does it? Not so sure. Let me jump over here and get uh, Bain on before the break. Hello, Bain. Welcome to the show. Hey, Pete. My experience with liberals, progressives, and it, boy, there's a lot to unpack with what she said, especially being a religion, is this, though, to narrow it down. They tend to define themselves by what they're not instead of by what they are. So, I am going to not be a man. Mm -hmm. And if you back that with good intentions, you've got a recipe for just undermining everything. There's a, yeah, and there's another element as well that a lot of this stuff starts in puberty, during puberty. Where Correct. girls, and they talk about this as well, they go really in-depth on this stuff, where girls' bodies go through puberty a little bit earlier than boys, they have uh, bigger changes, they have different mindsets, um, they're like towards, uh, or uh, I forget what he called it, but uh, these sort of predispositions towards negative feelings like guilt and shame, and anybody who, who remembers being a teenager or has been around teenage girls, like there's... There's, there's a very similar kind of dynamic that occurs and it manifests in various ways, whether it's, you know, wearing different kinds of clothing, baggy clothing or whatever, some in the more destructive forms, they'll start cutting themselves or they become anorexic, right? They, they, are, they, they are prone to certain behaviors like that. But the answer is not to then say, oh, well, you must be a boy because that's an easy out. Just say, oh, you're a boy. You're trapped in a girl's body. Now we'll give you all these hormones and now you don't have to go through any of the puberty anymore. And a lot of, a lot of them see it as an escape hatch, basically. Good. Make all of these feelings stop, you know? News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Dr. Jordan Peterson author and uh, journalist Helen Joyce, author of the book called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. They were talking about girls going through puberty and uh, how so many girls that are are in this window, uh, uh, this period of time in their life, how so many of them are are sort of being being wooed into this neo-religion of of trans. And well, here they'll explain it. So I would say about the um, the psychic epidemic that's playing out in teenage girls, we do see psychic epidemics in teenage girls first or worst. They're the people who become anorexic. They're the people who self-harm. They're the people who um, went through these hysterical laughing episodes and so on. If you look back historically speaking, I don't think anyone knows exactly why, but it's a, an observable fact at this point. But also, I know why. Oh, you know why? I can why. tell you why. Yeah, <laughs> well, I know some of why. Well, look, when boys and girls are given personality tests before they hit puberty, there's not a lot of difference in average level of negative emotion experienced. But as soon as girls hit puberty, their proclivity to experience negative emotion, so that shame and guilt and disappointment and fear and depression, is elevated markedly in contrast to men. 
and it's permanently transformed at puberty and it stays stable for the rest of women's lives. And so women reliably experience more negative emotion than men on average. Now there's wide individual difference and there's some men who experience more negative emotion than women, but we're talking about, and what that means at least in part is that the people, almost all the people who experience the highest levels of negative emotion, and that would include self-consciousness and shame, are female, and that kicks in at puberty. And That's so really then interesting. At pu- well, at puberty too, kids have to restructure their identities in quite a major way, and that's especially true for girls because they have, first of all, it happens to them earlier, right? So they're less mature when nature comes calling, let's say. Plus, as soon as puberty kicks in, they have these elevated levels of negative emotion. And one of the things we know, this is so interesting as far as I'm concerned, is that if terms that are reminiscent of self-consciousness load almost perfectly onto negative emotion. So there's almost no difference whatsoever between being self-conscious and and experiencing guilt and shame and anxiety. And so if you add the stress of puberty and that physical transformation to the emotional transformation, and then you take an extreme, the extreme outliers on the negative emotion continua, it's all women, it's all young women. And we know as well from the literature on gender dysphoria that the individuals who experience gender dysphoria, first of all, don't have suicidal ideation or those sorts of symptoms any more highly than people who experience non-gender dysphoria psychiatric disorders. So it's a class of general psychiatric disorder. And if they're associated with negative emotion, that's going to mostly affect young women. That makes such sense. And they turn it onto their own bodies as well. Like the shame and the uh, self-consciousness get turned onto their bodies. And in particular, their breasts. Yeah. It's not, it's not, yes. a, it's not yes. by chance that they're cutting their breasts off. Like you put, yes, you put well, the bad is- into your breasts and you cut it off. Right. I, again, this manifested itself in different ways in previous generations with, um, I mentioned earlier, like anorexia, bulimia, right? Changing of clothes, hairstyles, you know anti-authority or whatever, you know, the tomboy, like there, there are all these different expressions of these sentiments. And now there's this new thing and social media feeds it. Women are judged more harshly by men who are, you know, biologically looking at, you know, the, the looks of the woman to reproduce, right? They're judged more harshly by other women and by essentially biology. Boys, they get stronger, which leads to you know, anxiousness among the quote unquote weaker physically, uh, you know, women, women's central nervous systems could be more tuned to environmental dangers because of the uh, mother infant protector connection, right? This instinctive connection. So women are more in tune to these dangers. And so they perceive more things as dangerous, right? So all of this stuff is part of it. And, when trying to navigate this with the raging hormones and change of the body and all of this, along comes this remedy. It's, it's, you're trans. This is the solution. Here's what you do. We'll stop all this from happening to you right now. Whereas they say other dysmorphia is not treated this way. All of those factors tend to make women experience more negative emotion than men. And then that girls run into that young when they hit puberty then they're casting about for an explanation for that misery. And if that's provided for them, to them by the context, then they can be susceptible to 
emotional contagion any, and, and social contagion. Anything that's associated with explanation for the negative emotion or any way out of it, like anorexia, like cutting, like body dysmorphia, they're going to be more susceptible to that sociological, to those sociological fads. That all sounds incredibly familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and they and they jump onto whatever whatever is offered to them. And I would say about the, the trans social contagion in particular, is it's sold as a one hundred percent immediate solution. Like nobody tells an anorexic girl that we can just switch the anorexia off, but they do say to kids, if you if you're gender dysphoric, if you transition, magically you'll be better. And that all your problems will be solved because your problems stem from not understanding that you're actually really a boy. There is another aspect. Socially anxious people think obsessively about how others think about them. I'm going to say that again. Socially anxious people are obsessed. They think obsessively about how other people think of them. So this is some really good life advice right here. Train people to think more about other people, because you can't stop somebody from obsessively thinking about themselves by saying, stop thinking about yourself, <laughs> right? It's not going to work, right? Like I say, all right, I want you to not imagine a blank sheet of white paper, right? Bam, there it is right in your head, white sheet paper. There you go. That, that's, how that, that's how that works. So instead of telling people, don't think about other people thinking of you, what you need to do is to say, you need to think about other people. This is like a life lesson that usually parents teach their kids very early. From what I understand about parents, like I think that's one of the early things. Okay. So train people to think more about others. And when you do that, you actually become happier. We know that the more you think about yourself, this is literally true. There is no difference between thinking about yourself and being miserable. They load on the same statistical axis. And so these kids that are constantly being tormented by 150 identities, so that's a, a front not of freedom but of utter chaos, and then asked to constantly reflect on their own state of emotional well-being and happiness is the surest route to the kind of misery that's going to open them up to, to psychogenic epidemics, let's say. The clinical data on that are clear. Life lesson. I think it's a pretty good one. Think about others. You'll be happier. Betty, welcome to the program. Hello, Betty. No, oh, Betty. Sorry, Betty. Also, kids who are well-socialized and popular, they develop that. Guess what ages? Well-socialization and popularity. Like the, when you see a kid like in their teens or whatever, and they're well-socialized and they're popular. When does that happen? Between the ages of two and four. That's what he says, two and four. And it has to do with how they play with each other, how kids play. Icky Foo on, Mon or, uh, on Twitter. It's a Pete tweet. It says, Pete, anytime anybody offers you a panacea, run. That is so true. That's exactly right. All right, so a two-year-old 
This is according to Dr. Jordan Peterson, psych, uh, or a, a clinical psychiatrist, former professor up there in uh, Canada, uh, and got you know run out, or they attempted to fire him because he wouldn't use the adopted pronouns of of people. Um, and he's a psychiatrist. He's dealt with mental disorders and such, and he's talked with people like in a clinical setting for you know all of his career. So like guy knows what he's talking about. Um, he says a two year old cannot play a joint game. Their identity is purely subjectively defined. It's singularly them. That's it. They have temper tantrums if you interfere with that. But then between the ages of two to four, children extend their identities outward, he says. And he gives the example of uh, playing house, right? This creates a joint identity where you have to negotiate the roles. So, you know, brother and sister, and they're like, okay, you know, you play mommy, you play daddy, Right, they got to negotiate the roles. They then have to conduct themselves in those roles so the game is fun, right? So they both want to keep playing, and they both want to keep playing with each other. So you have to negotiate this. That's what me. It's when he's talking about you know the difference between an identity that's purely subjectively defined versus extending your identities outwards and have them defined um, in a communal and negotiating way, a negotiated way. You're no longer, your identity moves from an egocentric one, strictly about you, subjectively defined, to a communal and negotiated identity. And herein lies the connection with our current political environment. And now this idea that we have that your identity is only what you say it is, appeals not only to, I suppose, the ideologues that are pushing it, but it also appeals to people who are developmentally stuck, and I mean this in the deepest sense, are stuck at a two-year-old level of psychological development. And I think maybe there's a couple of reasons for that. You imagine there, a lot of kids are only kids now, so they're not socialized by their siblings. A lot of kids have older parents with lots of resources, so they're sheltered in a way that children never have been. And a lot of kids are exposed to computer screens and TV screens at a very early age, so they don't have the opportunity to engage in the kind of dramatic play that helps them uh, develop uh, an extended social identity. And so it's possible on top of all this that we have an epidemic of narcissism that's being capitalized on by the woke ideologues who are also likely suffering from the same psychopathology. <laughs> yes. yes and so you, you see a lot of things together. You see a lot of... Um, different needs or um, weaknesses or pathologies that are playing out in sync with each other. And so these children, I, I, I really do think that they're victims, they're, they're necessary victims of an ideology. So if you're an adult man who wishes to be seen as a woman, and the most important thing that you want is to have people believe that this is in, something innate, that people are born this way. And that means that there must be children who are trans. And it's, mm -hmm. it's not relevant to you whether or not that's actually the case for the individual children. The children are the sacrificial victims of the ideology. Mm -hmm. And so you've got adults who are using children as props for their description of who they are. All right. And then finally, narcissism. Two things that you notice when you look at these people are, one, what they're seeing when they look in the mirror is not what you're seeing. Um, they're they're seeing they're seeing a fantasy. They're seeing a, a, a fantastic version of themselves. But you, who are not in love with this this idea, this idea of the feminine version of this man, you're seeing something a lot less flattering. 
And that's very hurtful to them. That's experienced, I, I think, as a psychic insult. That, you know, because, because it's like being flipped out of the fantasy. Like if you're in this beautiful fantasy and then someone laughs or someone calls you he... And then that's that's narcissistic rage is what you see as the response. To that's that. right. That's exa- that's right. It's and it's it's narcissistic rage at in many ways the same level that you'd see in a thwarted two year old. Yes. Yes. And it feels and, like and that I, when you're at the receiving end. I have to say. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. It, I've it done both. Exactly I felt like both. <laughs> well, right. And when when you see when you see these activists on this front melt down and have a tantrum. If, especially if you have a clinical eye or you've been a parent, you think, oh my God, like that's that's exactly what two-year-olds do. And that's a hell of an early developmental level to be fixated at, you know. Yeah. Two, that's really bad. That's really bad. That that shows a real disjunction in in psychological development. So it's no wonder this is this is felt as seriously affecting by the people who are affected. Because yes. it's so deep. And it involves core issues of identity. Core issues of identity. The key here, your feelings are not the arbiter of what is real. Uh, really quick here, let me get over to Steve. Welcome to the show. Hey, Steve, thanks for hanging on. Oh, thank you, Pete. I'll be quick. <clears throat> when I, I'm 77, my education included discussions of things like uh, psychosis and neurosis. Mm-hmm. And we learned that when people can't deal with the reality of the situation, some of them create a false reality that satisfies them. And what Peterson was just talking about sounds a lot like this. And then once they've created that false reality, they will spend 100% of their mental and emotional energy defending that false reality. And that's when you are in a state of, uh, of uh, psychosis or neurosis. And so when you, and that's what's going on. We've got a lot of people in this country who are just certifiably in mental illness mm-hmm. and we uh and and when we say no 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 that's not the reality by the way neither christianity nor uh science agrees with these people men are men women are women that's right. what science says and christianity so yeah. when you when you say they uh they've got it wrong then they go into these tantrums the meltdown the tantrum yeah just- steve i appreciate the call i gotta run i'm out of time Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.